This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 16th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to talk today about some of the things that have been happening over the past week in the area of federal taxes. And this week, we'll take a look at a few developments. First, we'll look at this issue, a court decision, where a taxpayer ended up discovering that merely forming a new corporation uh, that took a part of the operations of a prior one, apparently reorganizing the structure into multiple corporations, did not allow him to claim that the activity in one of those new corporations qualified as a passive activity, allowing him to take passive losses against the same item. We'll also talk about a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case that's interesting in a couple of ways, including one argument that apparently was never made by the taxpayer. Uh, we'll talk about what, why this then became a much more complicated case. And also the uh, tension between the majority panel, the majority, two of the three judges on the panel, and a long dissent where the dissent essentially accused the majority panel of coming up with a result that they thought was, you know, just th this is the result we want because it appears unfair if we don't get there. And then stretching things quite a bit to get there is the accusation that's made. And so we'll talk about what's there. We'll talk about also why this becomes important because the issue involves a case where the IRS contacts a taxpayer indicating a return has never been filed. The taxpayer provides a copy of the return to the IRS employee that contacted them. And then the IRS, more than three years after that date, goes ahead and completes their exam, issues their, in this case, it was a partnership FPAA under TEFRA, but says, well, no, we're not outside statute because they never filed a return. So we'll talk about that issue, which, by the way, the tax court agreed that they had never filed a return. The Ninth Circuit panel says, no, 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 there's a filing there. And that's where we get into this weird area of, you know, the nature of does the law require them to say there's no filing, you know, and did the panel stretch things or is the panel's analysis actually supportable? And we'll take a look kind of how this works. What became one of the biggest stories of the week, and it keeps giving because this weekend we even had uh, tax, tax notes for publishings for Monday's option that will come out on the 16th essentially continued on with this story, now having the chair and ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee getting interested in it. But all came from a TIGTA report that in passing told us they had started doing this work and, you know, investigating the area and giving a report on was essentially the IRS's electronic filing issues. After it was discovered, the IRS had destroyed 30 million, 30 million information returns. So we'll talk about that, the reaction to it, and where we stand currently. We're also going to discover a taxpayer who actually ends up losing his refund because he filed his return too early. Now, this has more to do with the idea of how laws work. And again, probably another unfair result. But in this case, almost certainly, I don't see a court reversing in this position. I, I think we're going to be stuck with this unfair result. Uh, and it goes back to some issues involving seizing refunds to pay 
for defaulted student loans. And the fact that the CARES Act essentially called off the feds from doing that for a period of time. And unfortunately, the taxpayer filed just before the CARES Act came in and could have waited and filed his return for 2019. After the CARES Act, had he had the crystal ball knowing what was going to be in there, he would have kept his refund, but he lost it. Finally, we're going to take a look at a taxpayer who claimed that, yes, she had signed an extension of time for the IRS to assess tax uh, during the examination in question that had finished. She was at the appellate conferee. She had not yet provided, at least the IRS says, she had not yet provided information. She sought information to provide. She hadn't done so by the date she had told them they were going to do so. But in any event, at that point, then the IRS you know, had the extension of time, and she signs it. She claims she signed it under duress. We'll talk about why the court determined that no, it's not. And then also the whole reason of why do we have these situations where the IRS asks the taxpayer to extend the statute? Does this taxpayer have to? And what can the IRS do if the taxpayer decides not to do that? And at what point does the IRS communicating what they could do cross the line from merely providing information to effectively putting a taxpayer under duress. And so we'll talk about that as well. So let's start out with our first case, the case of Rogerson versus Commissioner. This is Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-49. It was issued on May the 12th, 2022. And it's an interesting case because we're going to look at something in the passive activity rules. Now, for those who are not aware, the passive activity rules, we have regulations at 1.469-5D. And at A there, that's where we define what represents material participation. And at 5A, one of those tests is the 5 of 10 prior years test. Now, these seven ways of showing material participation, quick review of the passive loss rules. If you have a business activity, we must determine if you're an individual or certain closely held corporations. If you, if the activity qualifies as one in which the taxpayer materially participates, or if it is an activity in which there is no material participation and which is therefore classified as passive. Now, passive activities are a special category. To the extent passive activities have losses, those losses can only be deducted to the extent of passive activity income. Or when we get to the final year, when we have had a taxable disposition of the activity, then we have a special rule that can treat it as non-passive. But in general, if we're going to take this loss that's a passive loss, then we're going to have to have some non-passive income. Now, the IRS gives seven, and it's under this temporary reg, it was an exclusive seven ways to materially participate. And those ways, quick review, if you have more than 500 hours in the activity, if you do everything necessary for the activity, if you did more than 100 hours and you have more hours of material participation than anybody else in the activity, uh, under the significant participation activity test, 
and SPAs are interesting. You take all of your activities, which you have not qualified under any of the other six tests as material participating, in which you have at least 100 hours in that activity. So you take those at least 100 hour activities that aren't otherwise materially participating. You add up your hours there. If the total hours in all of those significant participation activities is more than 500, then you materially participate in them all. If the hours are less than 500, then you end up not materially participating in any of them. That's that math on that one. Now, those first four are meant to prevent taxpayers from essentially being able to claim material participation activity that they're really not involved in. So that would, you know, in that case, they might be claiming that in order to be able to take a loss from this activity against all of their other income. So the first four are meant to block passive losses. That was the primary goal of the service in issuing them. The next two, which as if you have five, if you materially participated in five of the previous 10 years in the activity, ignoring this test, then you will be deemed to participate in the activity in the current year. Okay. That's going to be the one we're going to look at today. The other one that was in this special category, which are meant to stop you from making something into passive income that you really had material participate in, is if it is certain personal service operations, which would include accounting and being an attorney, uh, if you materially participated in any three prior years, no matter when, any time in the past, in this activity, then it will always be considered to be a material participation activity for the taxpayer. And then finally, Category 7 is the Facts and Circumstances Test. And under that test, you have to have at least 100 hours in the activity, and then we use generic facts and circumstances to test this. The one we're going to look at today is the special rule material participation test five of the prior 10 years. Now, since that was meant to stop you from create from taking something that was not passive in that you had materially participated in the past and now reducing your hours in it, but still having a flow of income like when you retire, but you still hold your S shares. For preventing you from using that flow of income to allow you to deduct these other passive losses you might have accumulated. So in this case, we have the five of the prior 10 years test. Mechanically, what this really means is you're going to have to wait until we get, you know, a number of years out to push. So we only have four years of material participation in the prior 10 years. So essentially, I got to wait until my sixth year after leaving in order to have get us down to those four years only of prior material participation. So I have a nice long wait period. Now, remember, if it's a personal service, this isn't going to work because then the three-year rule is going to kill me. But that was the point here. So that's kind of what we're looking here. We're also going to look a little bit at the activity grouping rules for a passive entity. Those will become important here, too. That is, how do we identify an activity and what are the grouping rules for a pass-through entity? Those will become part of this. Now, in this particular fact pattern, we have a taxpayer who is involved in 
aerospace, engineering, designing products for use in the aerospace industry. And he'd successfully run this S corporation that had a lot of different product lines and operations. It had been running for 40 years and he had been involved in it. There was no question it ran like that. Now, apparently he had some items that generated passive losses. And at some point it was determined, and we don't know if this is solely to get the passive loss issue cleared up, but certainly it was part of what his CPA wanted to use it for. We ended up splitting our corporation into three pieces. Now, under the reorganization provisions, that's not that difficult to do, to be able to divide this up into three, especially because we have long term, we've been in these businesses for years. So we're dividing ourselves up into three separate corporations. So it was one S Corp before it becomes three and he holds them each. So he holds the shares directly in each. This is not a subsidiary structure, et cetera. We have three different S corporations. So one of those S corporations, that's the one we're going to worry about here today, is the one that handled the analog, uh, you know, analog items, analog, um, you know, instruments, things like that, analog products they produce. And this was known as RAEG. It's got a full name uh, in there that's obviously got Mr. Rogerson's name in it. Uh, but RAEG produced analog items. This was one of what became three S corporations that came out of the old structure. Okay, so this year, so let's take a look. In this case, in the prior year, we had one S corporation. The analog product lines were in there, and Mr. Rogerson actively participated in that materially participated, and he had done so for decades. Now, this year we have these three corporations, and we're going to argue that he really didn't have much to do with this other corporation, so we can claim it as a passive loss. It's pretty clear from reading this and the position taken in the case that his CPA tax advisor was paying a lot of attention to the hours, but only the hours in the current year. I'm not sure if he wasn't aware of the five-year, a five-of-ten test, or he thought it was invalid. I think it seems like they're kind of surprised by it, so I'm guessing that the advisor just was unaware of the five-of-ten test. That was going to cause a problem in this scenario, in this case. So, they examine the return for Mr. Rogerson. They take a look at his return. The IRS says, well, wait, this is actually a continuation of the activity that was back in that old single S corporation from last year. It's still an activity just came out of that because of that. And the way the regulations are written, you have to count that in the five of 10 rule. So even if you're otherwise have no hours in this activity, it doesn't really matter because essentially you're in the five of 10 test and you're going to, have to wait until you get, in essence, six years in there, the sixth year in there, you know, of after you retired or after you left before you're going to be able to argue based solely on current year hours. And that is the IRS position in this case. Okay. Now the tax court agreed with the IRS. In this case, and the reason is pretty simple, right? 
The analog product lines had existed in prior years as part of the material participation group. When you have an S corporation or a partnership, first rule is they have to identify their activities. Okay? And if they don't separate out activities, then the taxpayer is not allowed to do so. And eventually in the regulations, the IRS came along and provided that if we do somehow divide this so that now we've somehow spun things out and we get this part of what we used to, it was a major part of what we did in the prior entity is now being continued, that that's still going to count as part of the 5 of 10 test. If you materially participated in the predecessor, will still count for this purpose. So the analog line had been there all those years. And he tried to argue, well, yeah, it was in there, but I never did anything with the analog lines in the escort. Here's a problem. Under the regulations, that's not going to cut it. The problem is, per the regulations, the let, let's assume for the moment he's correct about this, and there is evidence offered at trial that suggests that, in fact, he probably materially participates even today using current hours, but we'll ignore that. Even if we accept that he is not, that he never had anything to do with the analog lines, the problem is that the old S Corporation had to, in the first year available, separately identified that activity as a separate activity. In essence, put out at least two activities, the analog product lines and everything else, and have consistently reported those as separate activities. Since the S Corporation decided not to do that work, and that's going to be true even if they had no clue that that was a decision they could have made. But since they didn't do it, we are stuck now with all of that, everything that S Corporation did being a single set of activities. And he materially participates by looking at his work inside anything in there. If we get over that limit, then he materially participates. And that has been his position on the returns for a number of years. So the hitch is he had been materially participating. Now, they tried to argue a case we discussed a few years ago here, the Hardy case. If you remember the Hardy case, it, it was a surgeon who had invested in a partnership that was essentially a surgery center, and some of Dr. Hardy's surgeries took place in the surgery center. Now, the catch there became that he had been reporting for years, the doctor, you know, his partnerships as essentially material participation. He had materially participated in the partnership for a number of years. Uh, and the IRS attempted to claim, well, see, here's the catch. He did that because the prior CPA, in this case, because the new CPA came and changed it, and that's how we end up in court. But the prior CPA had apparently decided that since he was doing surgeries in there, as part of his surgical practice, that that somehow made it materially participate. We don't know why. But so the taxpayer tried to say, well, this is just like Hardy. And you allowed Dr. Hardy to treat the surgery center income as passive activity income, saying he never really materially participated in the surgery center, despite previously treating everything as material participation. And the tax court properly pointed out that the key difference here is 
this wasn't one entity doc that had Dr. Hardy's all income. It wasn't like his medical practice also included the surgery center. Rather, they said, the IRS had tried to argue there was an implied grouping. And the court said there are no such things as implied groupings. But there is an implied grouping in the context of a single entity, right? The regs are very clear there that we have to separate the two. Dr. Hardy had two different entities in which these two activities took place. And therefore, when the court ruled that they had been wrong forever and the surgery center activity was truly passive, that's fine. He had never grouped it with something that we were testing the group as a whole. Had he ever truly grouped the surgery center with his medical practice, yes, he'd have been in trouble. But that's not what Dr. Hardy did. In this case, they did do the grouping because the S Corporation didn't take the time to segregate out analog products. That was going to be a key issue. Now, okay, under the regs, the taxpayer is dead to rights. There's, there's, there, there's no option, right? They cannot win under the regs. And that's very clear. Look at the regs. It's pretty clear this isn't going to work. So now they tried a secondary approach to save this. They're going to say, well, the problem is that the regulations themselves, we believe they're invalid. And they attacked it on two points. One, that they were simply improper. They were simply an improper interpretation of the law. And then number two, they tried to attack it due to saying that, well, they hadn't gone through the right process in adopting these temporary regs. So let's talk about the first one to start. They said that, look, these regulations for passive activity under 469, 469 provided for your participation. Right? We're going to test you to see if you materially participate. And clearly, this is an annual issue you look at. So they argued it was inappropriate for the IRS to consider anything except hours in the current year for purposes of determining if you materially participate. Now, the court found no. The first thing is 469 gives the IRS very, very broad powers to write regulations to determine what represents participation and what doesn't. Right? The, these were in 1986. They were put together as part of the 86 Tax Act. That's where 469 came in. And the point of this was try to shut down what had been uh, some rather, it had gone wild by that point. I was in practice at the time, uh, which dates me. But it was a wild situation of establishing all of these partnership flow-throughs, etc. They had tried the at-risk rules to shut them down, and that was a total failure. So they came in with this broad thing and gave the IRS the directive to essentially write regs to shut this down. The court found that nowhere did Congress ever say the test was going to be purely an annual based only on annual hours to determine participation. The IRS had the right to define it. So the court found that there is nothing in here that suggests that this is beyond what Congress would have deemed acceptable or beyond what Congress wrote. Again, that's really the main thing we're looking at here is the regs as written, or not the regs, but the law as written, seem to give the IRS a lot of power here. So the court said, now, nah, we're not buying the theory that, that the regs themselves are invalid. Now, the other one, though, was a little more interesting. 
they tried to argue under the Administrative Procedures Act that these temporary regulations had not been properly sufficient notice and other you know, steps had not been properly fulfilled. And the court even found this as interesting, right? In essence, they, they found this as interesting, saying, well, in that case, let, let me go ahead and, whoops, give myself the right thing here. If you're on the screen, I'm having a little fun with this. As I get myself back to the, there we go, right? So they, they said, well, in, in this case, you know, okay, maybe. Maybe there, there's a problem here and these temp breaks shouldn't count as enacted. Okay, we're not going to say they shouldn't. The court didn't even address the question of whether or not the Administrative Procedures Act violation was bad enough that the IRS, you know, essentially had invalid regs. They, they, didn't, they didn't rule that was true, but they certainly didn't go anywhere near saying that wasn't the case. However, they said, here's your problem, taxpayer. You have to throw out all of the temporary reg that was put in via that mechanism. You can't just go in, you know, with razor, razor sharp and just remove the one thing you don't like and take that out. Rather, we have to take out all of it. Now, we're not told why the court made that point, but I suspect I know why. My guess is they were relying on if that if that one wasn't there, they're going to try to raise the argument the taxpayer didn't have 100 hours in the activity. And without 100 hours, if they don't do everything required in the activity, which he clearly didn't, a whole bunch of other people were involved in this business. If he didn't have at least 100 hours, he really couldn't qualify under anything except personal service. And this isn't personal service, so he wouldn't have qualified under the regulations. The, this was the only way that they could trip him up if he had less than 100 hours. I suspect, though, now that would have then got you to a long argument of did he stay below 100 hours? Well, the court wasn't going to go there. Rather, the court said, so we get rid of all of those, ignore everything the IRS told us there, and just take a look at the law itself, which essentially talks about do you have regular continuous activities. And they said, and using that solely as what we work from, and the IRS, and we're in this theoretical world where there's no IRS other guidance, you're going to say, look, we know you were deeply involved in this. You met with management constantly. Um, you, you know, you knew every employee. You had to improve. You had to approve a whole bunch of things. This guy is a real detail guy, and there were lots of things he had to improve. He dealt with customers. He, you know, would deal with. He had all of these activities in the analog area that could be documented. And so the court said, well, even if we ignore this reg entirely and go back to just the law without the IRS guidance, we're saying you materially participated. That's the way this would work. So unfortunately, he didn't win there. As I say, I seriously suspect they were trying to rely on other part of the regs that was no longer around, but uh, didn't work. So end of the day, taxpayer materially participated, and as such, he could not use the income from the analog division to allow him to deduct passive losses. Now, there's another part of the case that deals with his yachts, which were found to be passive, and they did lose money. So that was more of an issue. 
One thing to note here, though, is the taxpayer, even though he got hit with a pretty big tax bill at the end of this, he did not get hit with penalties. The court found that he had relied on the CPA. And in order for this to work, the way the tax court looks at this, the CPA testified and the CPA talked about what he had done, talked about the information he requested, what had been provided to him and, you know, what he had gotten, what he had advised him. Now, as I said, it seems pretty clear the CPA had not considered the 5 of 10 test. That's, I mean, I think he believed that having a new entity got rid of that problem. He didn't go through the regs in detail and find, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it seems very likely that was the problem. Okay. Is that advice erroneous? Yeah. I mean, he probably should have told the client they were violating a reg, but again, do people make mistakes? Do we, any of us can make that mistake? Yes. But because the CPA came forward and admitted that, the taxpayer was not penalized. So arguably, he, he didn't save the taxes he thought he was going to save, but he's also no worse off than he should have been. It wasn't as if the CPAs advised him, uh, damaged him in any extent, except potentially for the penalties and maybe interest. Now, we'll see whether there's some movement against him for the interest, but basically... Yeah, it, it was a good example of how the interest part of this or how the how, how we look at this sort of thing from the standpoint of good or bad advice and, you know, using advice to get out of penalties. Next up, Seaview Trading. Now, this is an interesting case. It's a Ninth Circuit case, number 20-72416, May 11th, this got released. And this looks at the statute of limitations for the IRS to issue a final partnership administrative adjustment request under the old TEFRA rules. But the basic concept will apply with any sort of IRS exam situation. In order to start the statute, we're all used to this, right? You, if you don't never file a tax return, the statute never starts. So that's the number one rule. Now, the question we have to decide here is what is the filing a tax return? Now, the regulations, the Congress does grant the IRS the right to write regulations to determine what is a filing. And the regulations for a partnership tell us that is supposed to be filed on time, right, at the office designated by the IRS in the instructions, right? You file the return there. Now, in this case, we've got to look at what that may mean, right? The taxpayer had the 2001 return as the one under consideration. Now, that return, the taxpayer believed they had filed in July of 22, or 2002, not 22. Got to remember, going back 20 years, this has been around for a while. So the taxpayer believed in July of 2002, the taxpayer had filed the tax returns for this entity. Now, based on that filing, right, it would have meant the statute would have closed in July of 2005. But in, later in 2005, after more than three years after that filing date, the taxpayer was contacted by an IRS agent who had been looking at their personal returns and indicated that the IRS didn't show a record that this partnership had ever filed a return. In response to that, the CPA who had handled Seaview provided the IRS with a signed copy of the return 
as well as a certified mail receipt. Now, that receipt is one of those things. It was the old Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, novel, where the issue was the dog in the night. And Watson says, but the dog didn't bark in the night. And, you know, Holmes said, that's the key. Well, we're going to have an issue here because that certified mail receipt should have made this a quick and easy case for the taxpayer to win. But we never actually see that used. So it's an interesting issue. We'll deal with that. We don't know for sure why it wasn't, but we probably should think about why it wouldn't have been used. I think that's important to understand. So provided the agent with that signed copy and receipt. Okay, great. Now, here's what's interesting. The agent now has a copy of a return the taxpayer said was filed more than three years ago, right? There's a certified mail receipt. In theory, the agent looking at that and the IRS looking at it would believe they're too late to challenge anything on the partnership return. But that's not what the IRS did. And as I said, this is what gets really interesting. We have a return that apparently we've used prima facie evidence of delivery to the Ogden Service Center, which was what was required, or at least prima facie delivery of the return. Maybe not Ogden Service Center. That, that, that's where it could get interesting. But, you know, but the IRS now goes forward with a full-blown exam of the partnership. And this isn't some small, little, tiny partnership, you know, with, with two guys who are struggling. We're talking about a billionaire and his dad are the partners. So th this is not somebody you're going to take on and assume that they won't notice things, right? They're not going to put up a fight. There's enough the service actually goes through this exam, right? Now, in 2007, at some point, when the case was into the chief counsel's office, um, the chief counsel apparently also couldn't find the return. And so counsel for the taxpayer, again, got another copy of the return, signed copy of the return in 2007, and provided that to the counsel's office, right, as they were looking at this issue. So an IRS attorney. Okay, all well and good, right? This exam continues on. More than three years after the second copy, in three years after we sent, after three years after the Partnerships Council sent a copy of the return, which remember is the second one we provided, and the IRS agrees they got both of these. They agree they have both of these in play. That's in the record. They had conceded that you know, essentially, because when they had questioned the uh, CPA or the accountant that had prepared the tax return, their initially was the one that sent this in, they had, you know, one of the exhibits when they were asking the question, was that return? That had, and they admitted it had been provided. So we know they have these, right? The, these returns, they've already conceded they have them. More than three years after the second one, they issued this notice. So now it's even better. We're not just three years past the date that they got the return back in 2002. At least the taxpayer says they mailed it in and they have a certified mail receipt. But we're more than three years past the date that they got a copy when they first asked for it. We're well past three years past that date and even three years past the second time they asked for that. So one of the things that's interesting here is 
Why is the IRS so competent? So confident they're not outside statute. I mean, you'd think they're wildly outside statute. They're so far outside statute, and why'd they ever let it get here? Well, the IRS says they're not outside statute because the return was never properly filed. And the tax court agreed. And this is not, as weird as it is, it's not totally inconsistent. And we've seen some of this used by even courts of appeal uh, to hold CPAs, you know, to look at this when the client tried to electronically file a return. And, you know, the, the, the CPA somehow fouls up, doesn't get it transmitted. They always say you must strictly follow all of the requirements provided under the law and regulations in order to benefit from, in this case, starting the statute. So very strict rules there. And tax court was a copy of this return never went to Ogden per the regulations. And until it goes to Ogden, the return is not filed. That's the way they were looking at it. And again, even though an IRS employee had requested it, it has to go the proper place. You can't just hand the return to any IRS employee. You're going to have to, you know, you can't find a janitor cleaning the IRS offices one day. You came by if they closed, and you can't hand that person a return and treat it as filed. Not, not going to work, okay? Now, here's where it gets interesting. The taxpayer, when they get to the Court of Appeals, has conceded they cannot show the return was delivered to Ogden. At the tax court, when they moved for summary judgment on the issue that the IRS was outside statute, they didn't argue the certified mail issue, but reserved the right to argue it later. When they lost this issue at tax court, they didn't argue certified at all at tax court. They rather completed the entire rest of the exam with everybody stipulating this issue was the IRS outside statute or not, was going to determine the ultimate result. Because if they were inside their statute, then they'll go ahead with what they had, they had taken care of everything else. And if they were outside statute, then the taxpayer would not have to pay more tax. So that, that was how it goes, right? So as we said, the regulation required the return to be sent as a service center and to be sent before the date it is required to be filed, Okay. Now, based on that, since the copy never went to Ogden, and everybody agrees, we have no evidence in this case that a copy of this return ever made it to the Ogden Service Center. The statute never started. Since the statute never started, the IRS was not late. The IRS not being late means, hey, taxpayer, you owe us some money. Now, this case, the taxpayer now is though appealing the tax court's ruling on the fact that the return was never filed, right? And they took that up to the Ninth Circuit. Now, this was heard before a panel of three judges. That's normally how appellate cases get heard. They do not have the entire Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. You'd never have the entire Court of Appeals because there's way too many judges. Uh, in other circuits, sometimes we do have the entire panel. But normally, the first, you know, they try to get rid of these with a panel of three judges. In this case, we have a panel of three judges. Now, the majority ruled like this. They said, okay, the taxpayers already conceded they can't show delivery to Ogden. As such, 
the taxpayer cannot show that there was a timely filing because they don't meet the requirements. For a timely filed return to count, it's got to go to Ogden and be before the due date in question, be wherever it's specified to go to, in this case Ogden, and it has to be before the due date. However, since the return was not timely filed now because we're saying there was no copy that went to Ogden before the due date, now we're under other, we got a different circumstance, and the regulations do not provide for how we determine filing of a non-timely filed return. Since no regulations describe how to file a non-timely filed return, they, they held that we're going to use like a general definition. So when we handed the return to the IRS agent that first time, that amounted to the date the return was filing under the plain meaning of the term. I do think we're stretching things here. And by the way, this is what generates a 50-page dissent, where fundamentally the, uh, the, the dissent's going to argue that under these rules, you literally could just wait till the day after the due date of the return, and then you could file it by handing a return to any IRS employee you wanted to under this definition, I, it's not quite, I think they would argue, I think the majority argue they're not quite that wild. But in theory, it would open up the option to, if I have a return that I just don't want the IRS to really look at in any detail, you know, I, I, I really, 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 I'm, I'm doing something, I don't want them, I don't want it to come up. So I, I want the statute to run out on this and the IRS just never see it. Maybe I let the statute tick a day extra so I get to March 16th, don't file for the extension. And then I find the worst possible place to give it to an IRS employee. Find that janitor, right, who's going in to clean the building, working for the government that night, who works for the Treasury, and I hand it to the janitor. Probably says, I don't know what to do with this, puts it in the trash and gets rid of it. But having done that, then I've triggered the filing. Hey, and the three-year statute runs out and the service never sees it. Um, I'm not sure that stands up in this view, but I think the problem is they kind of have ruled that if you do it outside the due date, there are no rules. Needless to say, the dissenting judge, she wasn't thrilled with that view, right? Her long dissent tears into the majority's logic, right? And she, she specifically points out, if you read this opinion, the very beginning of the opinion discusses, as she said, a mat she says, look, they come up with what she'll concede is a totally unfair and weird result would occur. That the IRS, you know, that you're a taxpayer, you know, you 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 believed you'd filed your return. IRS agent contacts say, hey guys, we don't have any copies of your return ever being filed. You know, can you give me a copy? And, you know, and they were saying, can you imagine after that, the IRS then contends after you gave them a copy they asked for, that you'd never sent them a copy. Essentially, you'd never filed the return. And she said, because they wanted the result, they didn't want the result there, they essentially ignored the law to build the result. And, you know, her theory is that's legislating from the bench. I think that's somewhat true, but I also understand how absurd the other result is. So we're there. But 
it does seem like the opinion would support an idea that as long as you don't file on time, uh, there aren't any rules is kind of what I, and that is what I get from the opinion. If you, as long as you don't file on time, there are no rules. They didn't write it in some way. And she does make a point. You know, they could have tried things like promissory estoppel, but she said, but they never demonstrated the required, the requirements there where the, you know, because they never, nobody ever claimed the IRS told them that by handing it to the agent, that would be a filing. Now, the majority does point out the IRS has internal memos that suggest it's better. You should ask it to be filed the agent. You should insist the taxpayer does that, etc. But I think in this case, they couldn't actually show that that had happened, that anybody had ever said this would be a filing. When you gave it to the agent, everybody just kind of worked on assuming that. So I understand why they wanted this result. But honestly, they probably should have gotten at least a little more creative in determining why this result was there. I mean, do I have specifically emphasized that this only works if the IRS had specifically asked for the return, not by handing it to any random IRS employee? Because unfortunately, as written, yes, the opinion does seem to suggest that, ah, you're past the due date, you can give it to anybody. Just walk up to anybody who works for the Treasury and just hand it to them. You know, j just have them do that. You'll be great. Yeah, that probably doesn't. But here's the real question I think you and a lot of I, you know, I had, and I think you would have or should. Why did we get here? We have a return that apparently was filed by mail. And certified mail receipt was kept. Now, under the regulations, that's an interesting issue. You know, because remember, we're told that they conceded they couldn't show that this item had actually been delivered to the Ogden Service Center. But if you look at the regulations in the article, we take you directly there. As long as you have the following things, and I think that this is where it gets more interesting. If you have a certified mail receipt, right, on which a postmark is applied by a U.S. Postal Service employee, and the envelope that was sent by certified mail is properly addressed to where you're supposed to send it, that's considered prima facie evidence of actual delivery of that document to the office to which it was addressed. Now, with that, it is considered interesting. They're conceding they couldn't show delivery to Ogden, which means there's a problem with the certified mail receipt somewhere. And I suspect that's the issue. Remember, a few things have to be done. We have to have a receipt stamped by a U.S. Post Service employee. While we're told this is a certified mail receipt, we're never really told it's a Postal Service one. It's a case number years ago where somebody went to a UPS store and had just a plain receipt from the guy behind the counter at the UPS store. And yes, they'll, they'll certify mail things for you. But what they do, and as we discover in this case, is, you know, in essence, they, they, they send somebody from the office, you know, 
somewhere before the post office closes, they send somebody down with their certified mail and they have it done on that date. Okay, so there's and the problem is in the case really went bad for the taxpayer. That particular date turned out to be they didn't get it done that day. It was the next day. Again, we don't know, but that's a possibility. There must be a timely postmark. Is it possible that somehow the receipt didn't get stamped? That's possible. You know, somebody could have done it, gotten the receipts there, not gotten the date stamp on it. That would have been a problem, potentially. And properly addressed. Now, this is where it gets more interesting. You know, did the address show up wrong? You do put that address down there where it's going. And that would normally be proof of where it was addressed to. But was that address wrong? Did it have the wrong address on it? Is that one of the problems? But all we know for sure is there is something that is wrong here, right? Something did it. And that's the key. Make sure if you're using certified mail that you tick all the boxes. If you are using a private delivery service, make sure you get all the backup you need for that and use a proper service. And with electronic filing, make sure you get documentation of the e-postmark date and keep copies of that. Right. There are ways you prove filing. And for each one of those, these regs, they're all the same reg. These regs all deal with how to do this. But definitely there was something wrong with it. And what I think is really interesting is because the way the IRS was acting. You know, the IRS was aware, you know, that that was there. And here's two issues. Number one, the taxpayer didn't even bother arguing this in front of the tax court. Instead of question, instead of raising certified mail, the, you know, and trying to get this to stick, they went through and settled the whole rest of the exam. We could have gotten rid of the exam immediately on this issue. We tried to get rid of it on the issue of that they were outside statute using the copy provided to the to the guy that first requested it. So why didn't we argue certified mail? We reserved it at the tax court. But we ultimately decided never to argue it, and we even just flat out conceded we couldn't show delivery, which the reg says we can. We conceded that. So something was wrong here. And I think that's made even more, more obvious. The IRS was very confident in this case that they were inside the statute, which means I'd be very confident that that return in July 2002 that the taxpayer could not show the filing, which means the taxpayer could not use the reg. So there was some obvious flaw. I'm betting, if I had to bet, I would bet that the postmark might not have been on there or the address might have been wrong. Uh, you know, one of those things, there's some obvious flaw on the receipt. I guess it could also be the UPS store issue, but there you would have expected they would have at least tried to go back. Although at this point, by the time it came up, it was too late. They would have at least try to go back and get that information from the UPS store to see if they have the real receipt. But yeah, that's, you know, I, I think those are the key problems. There was some obvious flaw, as I could see this, it would seem. I'd love to know what it was, but to me, the IRS was too confident that the taxpayer couldn't prevail on the certified mail issue. And the taxpayer appeared to be just as pessimistic 
that they couldn't prevail. So everybody seems to be sure it didn't work. That's kind of interesting. Here's what became the biggest story of the week, honestly. The IRS admitted to destroying 30 million paper information returns. Now, actually, this was alluded to back in September of last year. But this one, for whatever reason, took off bigger. And this is actually found in a TIGTA report. A service-wide strategy is needed to address challenges limiting growth in business tax return electronic filing. TIGTA report 2022-40-036 issued on May the 4th. In passing in the TIGTA report, it was mentioned that the reason why they're looking at increasing electronic filing was driven by the fact that the IRS had admitted to them that in March, they had destroyed, March 2021, they had destroyed 30 million paper information returns from 2020, right? You know, the 2019 information returns that hadn't been processed. They destroyed 30 million of them, okay? And this was just admitted. Now, at this point, People get upset. Lots of tax professionals were upset that the people might be penalized in this area because there'll be no evidence the return was ever filed. Uh, you know, that some other problems may come with the taxpayers who should have been the recipients of these. You know, did they destroy things like 1098s? Because it really didn't tell us for sure, aside from 1099 miscellaneous, as an example, the sort of information return they might have destroyed. You know, could somebody have problems with their mortgage interest rules now? You know, all of those issues, they were very upset. And just the fundamental problem was people had spent hours putting together these 30 million information returns. And essentially, all of those hours were now wasted when the service trashed them. Now, the IRS justified trashing these by saying that once they get into a new tax year, they reprogram the computers and they can no longer process prior year information returns. They cannot get into the system. They also said they had thought about just holding the paper copies and not having them in their system. But then they discovered it would be very, very difficult for them to retrieve any of that data. And there was some speculation article that came out on basically it's going to be in Monday's tax notes today, federal. But that always gets published on Saturday morning where they, they, they speculated that, in fact, you know, maybe the problem is the there are special rules under the taxpayers' rights now that the IRS has to produce all documents they have. And the thought was that if they had those, they really wouldn't be able to produce them. So they had to destroy them since they couldn't produce them. And otherwise, they'd violate that law. Don't know to. But it was all tied up due to the backlog. That's where we got all messed up with this. Tax professionals, as we said, there was quite a furor among tax professionals about the wasted time, potential penalties, etc., the IRS afterward, like the next day, another article in tax notes, the IRS issued a statement assuring everyone that there will be no harm to taxpayers, no penalties, no other issues. In essence, they just had no way to deal with them. Uh, they would never be in the system. They had no way to get them in the system, so they've just trashed them out. That was the most rational thing to do. Okay, well, again, not, not, not sure I like that too much. And it also then came out then on the next day, now this will be Monday's Tax Notes Today Federal, that the ranking Republican member and the chair of House Ways and Means, so Representatives Neal, the chair, and Brady, the ranking Republican, 
uh, have essentially told the service that they need some briefings. And, you know, uh, you know, Representative Neal suggested that probably the IRS should brief both of their staffs, you know, save time, make it work on this and why they're assuring that that there's no chance of penalties. Let's confirm that. What exactly you're doing and explain the situation to understand what it is. So we may still see more of this. Keep that in mind. Next up, this is CETO versus United States Court of Federal Claims case. This is a taxpayer an outstanding student loan, right? And by the way, this is docket number 1 colon 21-CV 01497. This came out on May the 5th of 2022. So the taxpayer had outstanding student loans. He was told by the education department that we're going to tell Treasury about these. It's going to put your refunds at risk. In spite of that, he went out and bought this solar energy property after being told that that would qualify for the significant refundable tax credit. Or I guess tax credit, I should say. So he had this nice big tax credit. And as part of the financing of the solar information, uh, he had to make a big lump sum payment by a certain date to get the bounce down below a certain level or his monthly payments would increase. So the idea was you could use that credit, use that to pay it down or use that to do most of the pay down. And that would enable you to keep this nice low monthly payment. They would cover it for that long. Well, of course, what happened was, in the interim was, he files this return in January of 2020. It's his 2019 return, filed it in January. Remember, pre-COVID, remember that? The days before, there was some time before COVID in 2020. You have to remember that. And the Treasury actually got his return processed. And his refund was approved in in February, but then offset and sent the education department. He was told about that. This all occurred in February. February, we had heard of COVID, right? But so far, we weren't really doing much of anything, right? So not, nothing much had happened. No special relief. There's the offset. On March 27th of 2020, the CARES Act was signed into law by the president. And there was a provision that would suspend student loan offsets through September 2020. Now, the taxpayer in this case says, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right. I should be able, you know, you, you can't do that because, look, March 27th, had I just filed my return after that date, it wouldn't have been offset. So, you know, I, I should be able to get it back. The court, the court of claims found that there's nothing in the law that, that said it was retroactive. The CARES Act did not have retroactivity. Right. So while it might seem unfair that his 2019 refund got taken, while it wouldn't have been had he, you know, filed his return the first of April. Uh, life's unfair, man. You know, you got, got to learn to live with that. It's unfair. The funds that were seized in February 2020 did not have to be returned by the government. Right. Okay. That's true, even though had he filed the return later he would have been given the entire refund. Court's theory is Congress has to tell us if a provision is retroactive. The law didn't say when this offset had to stop. So, you know, the panel says, well, we, we would presume that it's effective as of the date of enactment, May 20, March 27th, which was over a month after they took your money. So sorry, you're too late, right? Uh, don't come to us. 
doesn't help. Finally, this week, we'll take a look at the case of Everett versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-48. This is May 9th. Now, if you've ever been in an IRS exam, the IRS regularly asks taxpayers for consent to extend the statute of limitations. Right? If we get within a few months of the end of the statute, wherever it is in the exam, could be an exam, could be an appeals, but any time before the 90-day letter is issued, right, the notice of deficiency kicks out, um, we are, you know, they'll come back and want you to extend the statute, right? Now, in this particular case, the exam had finished for this woman, but she basically had asked for an appellate conference and they'd had one, right? Now, she had a conference and she promised actually at the conference to the, you know, appellate conferee says, okay, I understand what you said so far. This is this, but I need the following additional information to rule on your request for me to change what happened in the exam. And she said she would provide him with that detail by the end of the week. This is early in July. Well, by the end of July 2018, she had not provided that information to the IRS appellate conferee. Now, the conferee gets a list of upcoming statutes when something gets within nine months. And apparently she had come on that list now on this return. So he contacted her. You know, he said he basically she hadn't sent him anything back in yet. So he knew he was still waiting on that. So he prepared the letter to ask her to please sign the statute, right? Sign the statute, etc. right? He pointed out that because they were coming up on that date, that they would be unable to complete the appellate conference in time. And if she, you know, so if she wants to, she doesn't have to extend, but if she doesn't extend, then they're generally going to go forward based on the exam results. And that's going to be how we're going to issue this. It'll go straight to the 90-day letter. And at that point, she's either going to have to pay up or go to tax court. That'll be her options. Well, she basically very quickly turns around and sends the extension back in. However, she still didn't really provide the details. Went on for a while. Eventually, the appellate conferee just closes out the appellate conference and just you know, the everything goes forward just as it would have at the exam. Now, the taxpayer now <laughs> is in tax court and arguing that, well, she really shouldn't, she shouldn't be held for having signed that document because she claimed it was signed under duress. Now, she claimed the agent called her before sending the letter and told her what would happen if she didn't sign the documents. And she claimed she'd also had given the agent the documents. Now, the agent very specifically testifies to the contrary. He denied ever getting, ever making a call to her or ever having received the documents. Now we have a very straightforward he said, she said. Okay. But let's talk about what can the IRS tell you with this case? It is fine for the IRS to tell you that because we're approaching the statute, you know, if you don't consent to extend, then the service will have to take the steps to preserve its rights, which means it will issue the assessment, right? If you want us to continue, you know, going down this path, 
in appeals, then yes, you're going to have to issue and sign for the consent. That's acceptable, right? Now, and you might say, well, wait, wait, that, that you know, you're threatening me. No, the courts have ruled that that's not a threat. That's just telling you something that is obviously true. There, there's nothing wrong with the service going ahead and taking those actions, right? That's fine. That is, in essence, you, you are allowed to inform them that those are the steps you would take because they're, they're the obvious ones. Now, what you can't do, which they talked about another case uh, when we looked at this series because they reviewed prior case law, and, you know, if the IRS in another case had told the taxpayer that essentially we were going to put these massive penalties on you unless you agreed to extend the statute, you know, in essence, threatening them and stating that you do this or else we're going to do these nasty penalties that we hadn't really mentioned before. They say that gets coercive. That's coercive. That's a problem. But merely telling them that you're going to go ahead and just go with the agent's notice, that's not. But now the question becomes, we have this. And the court ruled that what was in the letter was not coercive. But now we have, you know, the, but she says, no, 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 he called me and he threatened me, you know, with this. He, he gave threats that would have been under the law coercive. Now it becomes a he said, she said problem. And now it goes to credibility. Okay, the agent was found to be very credible. The good news for the agent, and this is, by the way, good news for you in practice. He had everything documented. He'd issued notices. His paper trail was immaculate. He was not claiming he did anything that wasn't documented. On her side, we had problems. This, was, this one, I think, was the crucial one. She couldn't even vaguely recall when the call was made. And obviously, because the letter went out relatively early in August, I mean, there's only like one month period during which the call could have been made. But she never could give the date. And that becomes important because that would be something you could prove with the records from the phone company, right? You know, in essence, those records of calls would be available. Was there a call made to her from the IRS during that time period? Did it come from the appellate conferee's office? In essence, because if she could have shown that he made a call to her that he flat out denied ever making, his credibility would have been shot. Similarly, it doesn't appear she ever gave copies to the court or provided the court with copies of the document that she claimed she gave to the agent, right? Again, that's a little tougher because it's really just coming from her as opposed to third party. The phone call had been better. But the problem was when the agent flat out denied both of the things she said, if the agent's lying, you now have him in the perfect position to blow his credibility, right? His credibility will be gone. If, we, if either of those could be shown. But the fact that he held his ground said none of that happened. And now she's the one who can't come up with anything that could even vaguely do this and suggest this. It's, you know, suggest that he was lying about this, aside her claim he was, but she couldn't recall anything. It's like, 
yeah, we're, what we're going to take his word for it at this point. You should have been able to prove the case better than that. And that's the problem. Well, this has been the Kernfield Tax Developments for the week of May the um, May the 16th, 2022. Kernfield Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your state societies. I will be taking a look on the Connect sites for Arizona, uh, New, New Jersey, Illinois, Minnesota, uh, Washington, and also if something gets posted on Idaho's site, I'll take a look there so you can go there. Uh, look forward to talking to you guys ne next week. We'll see what comes up, anything new, see what goes up in taxes. Hey, don't forget, May the 16th is the date for your uh, 990 extension, the fun things for not-for-profits. So hopefully you got all that taken care of. And we'll talk to you next week with more, more things happening here on current federal tax developments.